Mrs Thistle shook her head slightly, her lace cap shifting on top of her silver hair. She reached her hand up to roughly adjust a hairpin and Sarah suspected her glasses stayed in place out of fear. Why? she asked. Because she survived what others did not? Tell me, did she do so out of bravery or virtue or because she is the anointed of the Lord or the handmaid of Satan? Or was it due to more luck than most girls will ever see? Mrs Thistle had only spared Sarah one glance before discussing her as though she was a horse or a bale of hay. Nell, perhaps sensing Sarah's irritation, sidled over to her while the two older women were talking and squeezed her arm in a gesture of solidarity. Perhaps, Sarah said, if you wish to know the answer to those questions, you should ask her. Nurse Haddon gasped, swatting Sarah on the arm. I do apologise, Mrs Thistle, probably the shock. No, said the older woman, no, I don't think it is. She spoke with an accent Sarah had heard in the mouths of some of those with whom she had walked to the mill each day, some of those who had died or been wounded in the massacre. Perhaps not from Manchester, but definitely Lancashire, a practical, unvarnished way of speaking, not given to unnecessary flourishes. Mrs Thistle approached Sarah and reached out to tilt her chin up, examining her face. Sarah knew she was risking permanent banishment from Nurse Haddon's protection, but she could not help herself. I am not livestock, madam. You will not be able to tell my age by looking at my teeth. Mrs Thistle let her hand drop and Sarah earned another swat from the nurse. Mrs Thistle is kind enough to take in poor young women like you. Unless you fancy sleeping on streets you have never seen, I would urge you to greater politeness. Kindly apologise. Sarah looked at Mrs Thistle, whose eyebrows were raised. I mean no disrespect, said Sarah, and felt Nurse Haddon exhale behind her. But I do not feel I owe you an apology. I simply spoke for myself, as there are no others to do so. Mrs Thistle stared at her in what was surely either outrage or fascination. But then, to Sarah's surprise, she shrugged. I wouldn't apologise either, I suppose. We've all had enough of being treated like livestock. But if I am to assist you, Miss Marin, this will be the very last time you speak so. And if I am to help you, I not only need to know how old you are, but everything else about you too. She brushed back a strand of Sarah's hair. Including the story behind your family name, I do not think I have ever before heard a voice from Manchester in the mouth of someone with a French surname. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading Magazine is a monthly publication dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name's Greg Dobbs. Today I'm talking with Meg Keneally about her second solo novel, The Wreck. It begins in early 19th century Manchester before crossing the oceans to colonial New South Wales. Meg, welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me. We just heard you read from the book, and the reading involved two of the main characters, Sarah McCaffrey, or Sarah Marin, as she's referred to in that passage, and Molly Thistle. And these mm -hmm. are two of the principal characters. Yep. Who are the real people behind Sarah and Molly? 
Well, Sarah is a complete fiction and there's a reason I made her fictional, which I'll talk about in a minute. But firstly, Molly Thistle is inspired by someone who did exist, a woman called Mary Reby. And people might be interested to know that the face on their $20 note is the face of a horse thief. Um, Mary Reby came here as a 14-year-old girl convicted of stealing a horse, married, and when her husband died, uh, she built one of the largest businesses in colonial Australia. By the time she was of advanced years, she could buy and sell pretty much anyone in the colony. And she's always fascinated me because I've often wondered what it must have taken to build such successful business as a woman and as a former convict. There was obviously a bit of snobbery surrounding former convicts. So uh, so I've always wanted to write about her or someone like her to explore that, to explore how she would have navigated the system of the day in order to reach the level of success that, that she reached. And then Sarah is a is a complete fiction because what I wanted to do was tie together disparate parts of history that interested me and that I wanted to write about. One of them was Mary Reby, another was the Peterloo Massacre, uh, and a, a third was uh, the Cato Street Conspiracy, which uh, is the inspiration for an event fictionalised in the book, and the fourth is the deadliest New South Wales maritime disaster still the deadliest. Um, around 120 people died when the Dunbar sailed into the cliffs at the Gap, just a little south of Sydney Harbour. And I think people can actually go to the heads there and there's a plaque mm. that uh, commemorates that wreck. Near uh, sort of Watson's Bay area, just at the Gap there. I'm a keen scuba diver and I've scuba dived at that location on many occasions. And occasionally you find a tea token or you find a little bolt or a piece of metal which has been fused to the rock over the ensuing more than a century and a half. And it's a very atmospheric place. It's a very sad place. And I'm always keenly aware that I'm diving where so many people lost their lives. So when you're writing historical fiction, where does the research end and the fiction begin? At what point does your imagination take over? Well, I think the imagination comes in when you're thinking about the characters as people who lived and breathed and walked through this setting, this historical setting. I often think of it as a fictional story inside a factual picture frame. The stories are invented, many of the characters are invented, but it's really important to get the picture frame right, the context in which those characters exist. Where the imagination takes over from the research is you use the research to inform yourself on how people would have lived, what attitudes they would have had, uh, and so on and so forth. But then the imagination kicks in when you imagine a person that you build from scratch and how they would react to various situations, how their reactions would have been informed by the world in which they lived, uh, by the attitudes they would have held, by their circumstances, etc. So obviously a contemporary person is going to react very differently to the same circumstances that might draw a different reaction to somebody born 200 years ago. Uh, so... That's where the imagination side of it comes in. But as with all characters, I've always believed there are three questions that you need to answer about every character, whether they're historical or not. What they love, 
what they fear and most importantly what they want because what they want is going to drag them through the story. And that's a big part of the imagination as well, building that into the character and then pressing go on the simulation and seeing where it takes you. Your first solo novel, Fled, mm-hmm. is a similar epic historical adventure based on the life of convict Mary Bryant. What draws you to these kinds of characters and these settings and this aspect of Australian history? I've always been fascinated by Australian history. I think it might have come from the fact that I had parents and still have them, very fortunate uh, in that, um, who dragged me around historical sites throughout my childhood when I would rather have been watching TV. But something clearly stuck. Um, And I have always been fascinated by this Australian story. This aspect of the Australian story, obviously the Australian story goes back around 80,000 years with the first Australians, but the colonial side of it, I've always been very interested in this contrast between claustrophobia and vastness. You have these tiny claustrophobic prison cells in the middle of this vast wilderness and you have people who are trying to transplant a way of life into a land which simply doesn't accept it. They're trying to use European land management practices, European farming methods. They don't recognise the land management and the farming of uh, the Indigenous people who have been doing it for millennia. They are arrogant enough to think that they know best and, and the land quickly teaches them that that's not the case. And I'm very interested in that struggle as well. And the other fascinating thing to me about colonial Australia is that here you have a society where people like Mary Reby could exist. I don't think she could have existed in the England of the period as a massively successful entrepreneur as as she was. She needed the conditions, the unique conditions, which were accidentally created here in order to thrive. And while this was a place of horror and a place of incarceration, there were those who were able to take opportunities which they might not have had in um, uh, in England. And I'm not saying it was a cakewalk by any stretch of the imagination, but there were those who, who rose above their circumstances here in a way in which the societal structures in England might not have allowed them to, and I'm very interested in that as well. Sarah McCaffrey is framed as from the beginning as a rebellious character, as a, almost as a woman out of her time. How does the action and the experience that she undergoes in the book change her over time? Well, when she starts out, she's simply a uh, mill worker who feels, as many did, that uh, she's not getting a fair shake. And she goes to a peaceful protest, which turns into a massacre. In the book, it's a fictionalisation of the Peterloo Massacre, which actually occurred in Manchester in 1819, when around 60 to 80,000 people went to hear a speech and were set upon by hussars and yeomen who um, killed at least 20 and wounded hundreds of others. Quite an extraordinary event. And I've always been interested in that because this idea of suppression of peaceful protest is one that is unfortunately uh, still with us. That experience turns her essentially into a terrorist. And I wanted to explore her in the context of someone who has suffered an unbelievable loss in a way that she feels is quite unfair and how that radicalises her for a time and what she's willing to participate in to avenge that loss because she feels she has been given 
no other option. The outcome of that ultimately sends her spinning off to Australia where she meets Molly Thistle, who initially she thinks is just another rich person and as culpable as anyone else. But over time, through her relationship with Molly Thistle and various other events, she comes to see that there are perhaps better ways to change the world and that violence is uh, is is not the answer. So that's part of her her journey in the book. This whole idea of uh, radicalism or rebelliousness is a, a, a theme that runs mm. through the whole book. And you could easily say that both Sarah and Molly are rebellious personalities in one way or another. Mm. Uh, they might have even been regarded as radicals or even extremists, I suppose. Mm. Of course, one person's extremist is another person's hero. Yes. But given the origins of the two main characters, in your eyes, are these two characters rebels, extremists, or simply model Australian citizens, archetypes, if you like? All and none at the same time, I suppose. Uh Sarah, at one point, as I said, is essentially a terrorist. She's taking part in a plot to behead the cabinet and she has her doubts about whether that's the right course of action, but she feels that she has no other way. And I want to make clear, of course, that in no way by writing about this am I justifying that course of action, but I was very interested in exploring how oppression can lead to extremism. At various points, she's a rebel. She's an extremist. She does finish the book as something quite different. She goes through various iterations in her journey. She goes from someone who's a bit disaffected to someone who is completely radicalised. And then over time and through various events to someone who thinks, well, perhaps things are not quite as black and white as I thought. Um, Molly Thistle is certainly a, a rebel in a way in that she refuses to let her gender get in the way of building a business. And at one point in the book, she says to Sarah, you know, after a time, when you're rich enough to buy their homes, they forget that you used to be a convict. So she she elbows her way into this society and carves out a place for herself. So she's, she's a real trailblazer. I've always seen uh, Mary Reby as a trailblazer, and I've wanted to write Molly Thistle like that as well. It's actually a very Australian story, isn't it? Yes, yes. I couldn't really leave this interview without a question about you and your father, Tom Keneally. So you've collaborated with Tom on the Montserrat series of historical mysteries. Yes. And The Wreck is now your second solo novel. Mm-hmm. How has the, uh, and let's call it the professional relationship between the both of you changed through the course of creating all of these works and over time? It, it developed differently to the way we thought it would because initially with the Montserrat books, um, we thought that we'd write alternate chapters. But the way we write is so different that it was just a little bit too uneven. Uh, so ultimately I wrote them. Uh, we worked together on the story. I wrote them and then we we edited them together and I was in constant contact with him, you know, always ringing, always emailing him little snippets and saying, what do you think of this? It's always been a very mentor-mentee type of relationship. And uh, I miss working on those books with him. Montserrat and Mrs Mulrooney will be back. I just have to write another novel first and then then we're back to uh, trying to get them back on the road. It's taught me so much about writing, working with him. It's allowed me to look under the hood and see, look under the bonnet and see how things work, how things fit together, um, all of the 
stuff that goes on behind the scenes of a novel. So it's been, you know, it's been an incredible process, an incredible apprenticeship, which I'm hugely fortunate to have had. And you know what? We don't fight. People think that we must. But we're we're both far too passive aggressive for that. Um, we're we're temperamentally very similar, and we uh, uh, we simply, you know, just get on with it, and we get on extremely well, and always have. And if there ever is a mild disagreement, I let him have the final say. I think after fifty plus books, he's he's earned it. Uh, the worst it ever gets is some kind of stare down. Would that be about right? And not even that. We tend to say things like, I understand if you don't think this, but I think if it's okay with you that perhaps you ought to – and, and, you know, we have these circular conversations where we're both trying to be incredibly polite. Uh, but no stare downs, um, no flung pages, no pyrotechnics no, I can't do this anymore, I can't work with you. Um, it's been an overwhelmingly positive experience, for me anyway, and I hope for him. He he claims it's been. Um, Is it actually possible to draw a line between the personal and the professional in, in your case? It's funny because that line has never really been there because Dad's work has always been so much a part of our daily life since I could Remember, you know, when I was a kid, most people's dads left the house to go to work. It was very unusual to have a, a, a father who worked from home. And so his work has always been part of the fabric of our family life. So that line has always been blurry at best. So it wasn't too much of a departure to sort of move into a professional context with him. Well, Meg, congratulations on the new book. Thanks for joining me on the Good Reading Magazine podcast. And I hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me. I've been talking to Meg Keneally about her new book, The Wreck. It's published by Echo and it's available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening.